Tonight I would like to continue with the next line of the refrain from the Satipatthana Sutta. At the rate we're going, you might have to spend a year (laughs) to get to the end. And of course the refrain, which is repeated so many times, tells us how to carry out the instructions that the Buddha gave in each meditation exercise. So just to refresh your memory of the refrain, in this way, in regard to the body, and then the other three uh, fields of mindfulness as well, in this way, in regard to the body, one abides contemplating it internally, externally, both internally and externally. One abides contemplating the nature of arising in the body, the nature of passing away, the nature of both arising and passing away. This is the next line. Mindfulness that there is a body is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. So mindfulness mindfulness is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. That's what I'd like to discuss this evening. Bare knowledge. That means observing experience without getting lost in our stories, in our associations, in our reactions. It's the simple and direct knowing of what's present, moment to moment, without making up stories about the experience. Sometimes it feels like our mind is a story-making machine. And the Buddha is suggesting just to come back to the simplicity of bare knowledge, bare knowing of what's arising. One of the teachers who comes to IMS, um, name is Narayan. Some years ago, she created a wonderful little book. It's very little. It's about, it's just like a couple of inches square. And it's mostly drawings, uh, kind of very nicely drawn stick figures engaged in all the activities, daily activities. Very beautifully done. And sort of on many of the pages, there's just a very simple caption to the pictures. So this figure of somebody walking, the caption is, when walking, just walk. And somebody eating, when eating, just eat. When standing, just stand. When speaking, just speak. (laughs) The whole book is just a sequence of that instruction. It was amazingly helpful to me in my practice. Because I'd be going along, you know, maybe walking, doing the walking meditation, and whenever I felt myself just reaching for something, you know, in the walking, that line would come back to my mind, when walking, just walk. And it reminded me of the simplicity of bare knowing. Knowing things just as they are. This is the meaning of the word vipassana. 
you know, seeing clearly or seeing things as they are. But so often in our practice, we miss the simplicity of experience. We miss the simplicity of bare knowledge because we're overlooking, looking over for something else, for something special. We're leaning into experience with expectation or wanting. And we often miss what is right in front of us. I don't often tell Nasruddin stories these days. He was a big favorite years ago. But one came to mind in this regard. And for those of you who are not familiar with Nasruddin, he's kind of a Sufi teaching figure, wise man, saint, fool, madman. There was this whole body of stories uh, about him. Well, it seems Nasruddin was traveling back and forth between uh, Persia and a bordering country. And he'd be traveling f- back and forth with his donkey. Uh, and reports were circulating that Nasruddin was getting richer and richer. But every time he crossed the borders, you know, the customs people would be looking in the saddlebags, you know, looking for what he was carrying forth or smuggling. You know, how was he getting so rich? And they could never find anything. So he keeps going, making this journey back and forth. People keep looking. He's getting wealthier and wealthier. Finally, you know, one of the customs officials just confronts him directly and, you know, what are you doing? How are you making so much money? He said, I'm smuggling donkeys. (laughs) (laughs) It was right there. (laughs) but looking for something special, looking for something extra. So we might remember that in our practice. What's right there in front of us? What's the moment's experience? So sometimes we miss this bare knowledge because we're looking for something. We're overlooking the moment. Sometimes we miss it because we become identified with what's arising. We conflate this bare knowing, maybe, with the hindrances. We become identified with the hindrances, or moods, or very pleasant meditative experiences. You know, maybe calm, or peace, or rapture, or stillness. When we're not mindful of these states, whether they're the hindrances or meditative states, pleasant ones, when we're not mindful of them, when we are identified with them, then they become a filter through which we're experiencing things. And then again, we're not in that place of simple bare knowledge, bare knowing. Ajahn Chah, the wonderful Thai forest master, he wrote something so clear about this. He said, within itself, the mind is already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. It becomes agitated because moods deceive it. 
Sense impressions come and trick it into unhappiness, suffering, gladness, and sorrow. But the mind's true nature is none of these things. Gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself. Then we think that it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever. But really this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful, really peaceful. So we must train the mind to know these sense impressions and not get lost in them. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. Settling back into the simplicity of the moment, into the bare knowing of what it is that's arising, not getting deceived by the moods that come. So the question for us is how do we establish this bare knowing and continuous mindfulness? Because the Buddha is very explicit in his teaching, this is what we need to develop. So how do we establish it? There are two ways that support the development of this bare knowing and continuous mindfulness. And the first way is interesting because when you hear it, <clears throat> it sounds tautological. But it actually contains within it an important meditative understanding. So this first way says that mindfulness arises through previous moments of mindfulness. Basically, to strengthen mindfulness, we need to be mindful. That sounds obvious. <laughs> you know, how else are we going to strengthen mindfulness? But there's something deeper in this that it's pointing to. It points to our experience, both in meditation and in life, of the growing momentum of states that are well-practiced. Whatever we practice repeatedly begins to arise more and more frequently, more and more spontaneously in Buddhist Abhidhamma, in the psychology, this is called unprompted consciousness. It's consciousness and mind states that are arising without effort, without prompting, because they're well practiced. And so there's a momentum that develops. There's a biologist by the name of Rupert Sheldrake. Uh, who talked about something called morphic resonance. And it was an interesting concept when I first came across it, because what he said was that in nature, an event might not happen for millennia, for thousands of years, for tens of thousands of years, you know, whatever scale you're looking at. But once it has occurred the first time, then it starts happening more and more frequently. 
And it just reminded me of this phenomenon. The more we practice something, the more frequently it arises. There comes a time in the development of the momentum of mindfulness that it starts to flow on by itself. Now when it does, we open to an insight that not only comes from the development of mindfulness, this flow, but also strengthens it. And this is the the insight into the nature of this mind-body process, which is called, in the teachings, purification of view. And this purification of view is the first doorway into a deepening realization and experience of selflessness, of anatta. So I want to talk a bit about this purification of view, this insight that comes when mindfulness develops in strength. It's really very simple. In every moment, what is happening is that there's an object arising, an object that any of the six senses, mind included, there's an object arising and the knowing of it. That's the insight. So, for example, there's the rising of the abdomen. There's the rising and the knowing of it. There's the falling and the knowing of it. There's hearing a sound and the knowing of it. There's feeling a sensation in the body and the knowing of it. There's thinking and the knowing of it. Why is this so important? Because when we see this clearly, we see that everything that we call self, that we call I, is nothing more than this pairwise progression of knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. That's what is really happening. Vipassana is seeing this clearly. So there are a few salient points here, you know, which might help us explore this insight, this purification of view. The first is that this is not complicated and it's not esoteric. So don't think, oh, well, maybe I'll practice 20 years and I'll see this insight into mind and matter, nama rupa. It's not like that. It is a very simple description of our ordinary experience. That in every moment, an object is arising and there's a knowing of it. This knowing and object are arising spontaneously and simultaneously. So the knowing doesn't come like a moment before and is waiting for the object, and it doesn't come a moment after trying to catch it. The knowing and the object arise completely simultaneously. So we'll do a little experiment, if you like. Just, if you move your arm, like move it to the right, 
So there's the moving and the knowing of it. Is anybody moving their arm and not knowing? Okay, now move it to the left. Knowing. Move it up. Knowing. Down. Knowing. Dance around a little bit. The knowing is right there in the very moment of the experience. Do you get it? It's that simple. But it has profound implication. So, as you're practicing, as you're going through the day, pay attention to this. That the knowing and the object are arising moment after moment, completely simultaneously. That's the first thing. The second is that the knowing and the object can be distinguished. They are two different things, but they can't be separated. So it's not like the knowing is here and the object is here. They're arising simultaneously together. They are distinct. They have different functions. But they cannot be separated. So it's like, you, know, you just look at this. Can you separate the color and form? No. They're two different things. The form is one thing and the color is something else. So we recognize the difference, but they can't be separated. The color is in a form, and the form is a color. So this is important to realize that this knowing and object are arising simultaneously, two distinct things but which cannot be separated. So it becomes really a question in any moment of foreground and background. Sometimes the object is what's predominant. Sometimes the knowing of it is predominant. Be easy with that move. So you don't have to struggle to keep the mind just in the knowing, and you don't have to struggle to keep the mind just in the object aspect of it. They're coming together, simultaneous. And feel an easy exploration, an easy rhythm. Sometimes one will be predominant, sometimes the other will be predominant but they're always both there. Are we together so far? This exploration of Nama Rupa is very important because the more deeply we understand that this is actually what's happening moment to moment, as I say, we realize deeply the selfless nature of it all. This process is not happening to anyone. What we are and what we call self is this process, this unfolding process of Nama Rupa. So we see it, that it's arising simultaneously. We see that there are two distinct aspects, but which cannot be separated. Thirdly, we see that the knowing in each moment, the knowing of the object, knowing the hands going up, knowing the feeling of it going down to the side, whatever we're doing, 
we see that the knowing is arising completely spontaneously. When you move your hand, if, if you just move your hand up, is there any effort to know that? No. When we're undistracted, we move the arm up, and it's known by itself, spontaneously. Why? Because the very nature of the mind is to know. Just like the nature of a mirror is to reflect what comes in front of it. So we simply need to be mindful of this as it's happening. There's no struggle, there's no effort. It's really a question simply of not getting distracted from the simplicity of this insight. We also deepen our understanding that the knowing is not essentially altered or influenced or changed by what is known. This has some very liberating consequences for us, not only in our meditation practice, but in our lives. Now, there are many experiences of this. For example, you're sitting. Have you had the experience, even briefly, at times, when you might be feeling some unpleasant sensation in the body? You know, it's a pain in the knee or a pain in the back. And you're just knowing it, knowing it. And then something pleasant arises, maybe a pleasant sensation or a pleasant sound or whatever. The knowing mind, that which knows the pain and that which knows the pleasant experience, the nature of that knowing has not changed. The knowing is not altered. Its function is simply to know. So going back to the mirror image, it's like the nature of the mirror is just to reflect what comes in front of it. Some things may be beautiful, some ugly, some very clear, some indistinct. The nature of the mirror does not change. It's not affected. One of our Tibetan teachers, Myoshal Ken Rinpoche, he, he gave the example, he said, the price of gold goes up and down. The nature of the gold stays the same. The gold bar doesn't change, even as the price goes up and down. This last uh, January, I spent a week down in the Caribbean, so kind of dead of winter here in Barry, and it was wonderful down there. You know, it was kind of like a Deva world, and 80 degrees, and everything's beautiful. So the day I came back, it was, I flew back, it was 80 degrees down there, and it was minus 10 here. <laughs> so it was a 90 degree temperature difference. And it was windy and cold and you know, so I was going from this one place to back back here. 
But what was so striking to me was that in a fundamental way, a very fundamental way, it didn't make any difference. It was just knowing one thing or knowing another thing. And the quality of the knowing was exactly the same. So it's very liberating as we begin to connect with this empty, cognizant nature of the mind. There's, there's an even more striking example of this. Henry David Thoreau um, you know, died early in his 40s. He had TB. He was a very remarkable being. And this is a friend who was with him you know, during his long illness. And this is what he wrote about Thoreau. He, talk, talking about Thoreau, he remarked to me that there was as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health. The mind always conforming to the condition of the body. During his long illness, I never heard a murmur escape him, or the slightest wish expressed to remain with us. His perfect contentment was truly wonderful. That's a remarkable understanding of this insight. There was as much ease or contentment in perfect disease as in perfect health because the mind always conforms to the condition of the body. He's talking about this nature of knowing. We know the condition of perfect disease. We know the condition of perfect health. So this is what we can practice and understand and deepen our realization of in the context of a retreat. So we build this momentum of mindfulness through being mindful. That's the first way. And we do it very simply, and we've given this instruction many times. You know, we start being mindful of some primary object. It could be the in-out, the rising, falling. It could be sitting, touching. It could be hearing, sitting, touching. It could be seeing, hearing, sitting, touching. It doesn't matter. We give the mind some primary object of attention, we develop mindfulness of it, the simplicity of bare knowing, something else arises predominantly, we become mindful of it. No longer predominant, we come back to the primary object. This simple exercise builds the power, builds the momentum of concentration, of energy, of mindfulness. As the momentum gains strength, then we open to a more choiceless awareness, that is, aware of whatever is arising moment to moment, not so reliant on the primary object. At this point, as our awareness becomes more panoramic, then the emphasis in our meditation is shifting from the content of what's arising to the process of how it's happening. We start tuning in more and more to the three characteristics of 
of change, of unreliability, of dukkha, of selflessness. So we're shifting from content to process. Ajahn Jamnayan, who is one of the great Thai teachers, forest teachers living now, and he has come often to Spirit Rock to teach. He wrote, at some point the mind becomes so clear and balanced that whatever arises is seen and left untouched with no interference. One ceases to focus on any particular content and all is simply and all is seen as simply mind and matter, an empty process arising and passing away of its own, a perfect balance of mind with no reactions. There is no longer any doing. So that's what we can settle back into. We see that in every moment. It's simply knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. The knowing is happening spontaneously. The two are arising simultaneously. And we're simply in that process. So all of this is about strengthening continuity of mindfulness through mindfulness itself. Okay, what's the second way of strengthening mindfulness and continuity and bare knowing? The second way is through the development and the strengthening of the factor of perception. And this factor of mind is so important, <coughs> perception, that the Buddha singled it out along with feeling, from all the 52 mental factors that are described in the Abhidhamma, he singled out, or doubled out, <laughs> feeling and perception, and grouped them in the, in the listing of the five aggregates, that is, all those elements which constitute our being. There's, there's physical matter, feeling, perception, than all the other mental factors in consciousness. So perception plays a critical role in our unfolding lives. Now very interestingly it's said that perception is considered to be one of the causes for mindfulness to arise. I want to explore this a little bit because it's not obvious. Perception means it's defined as that mental quality of recognition. It's that quality which picks out from our experience the distinguishing marks of that particular object. We see something and see it as red, or blue, or man, or woman, or tree, or car, or whatever, whatever the object is, it's perception which picks out what distinguishes it from everything else. It then creates a concept to describe it and stores it in memory so that when the same kind of experience arises again, 
we remember and we recognize it. For example, we hear a sound. Consciousness simply knows the sound. That's what consciousness just knows. Perception recognizes it, recognizes it, names it, creates a concept bird, and then stores that word, that concept in memory. We don't hear bird. We think bird. We hear a sound, and perception creates the concept, the word in our mind. Now, it's not always that the word will come to mind every time we hear the sound. We won't always think bird, although, as you probably noticed, the concept jumps in very frequently. But it doesn't always jump in. There can be a pre-verbal recognition of what the object is. Perception is still functioning. I'll give you an example. It was, it was quite a funny example to me. I was doing a retreat in Australia with Saida Upandita, and I was doing walking meditation just in the place outside where the cars were parked. And, and one of the cars had a very shiny chrome fender. And there was a bird just kind of walking below the fender. And it looked up and saw its reflection in the fender. And then it started flying into it, kind of attacking, attacking the reflection. Now clearly there was a perception in the mind of that bird. There was a perception that there was another bird that needed to be attacked. So this poor bird is just (laughs) banging into the fender. Of course, it was a faulty perception. Presumably, it didn't have the language bird, but the perception was still there. The recognition was still there. That's how this factor functions. So now, understanding how perception works, it raises a very interesting question regarding the use of concepts in meditation practice. Because on the one hand, we want to establish mindfulness to the extent necessary for bare knowing, just like the Buddha said, which somehow bare knowing suggests the mind free of conceptual overlay. Doesn't it? Right Let's establish mindfulness necessary for bare knowing. On the other hand, the factor of perception with its attendant concepts is said to be the cause for mindfulness to arise. Okay, so how do we resolve kind of these two somewhat contradictory notions? It's resolved as we deepen our understanding of what perception means. It is a common factor, which means that it is arising in every moment of experience, this factor of recognition. Now when perception is strong without mindfulness, like this recognizing function, When that's strong without mindfulness, 
which is the usual way we navigate through our lives. You know, we're busy in our lives and in the world. We're recognizing things left and right. But very often, we are not mindful of what's happening. Okay, so when perception is strong, but without mindfulness, then we know and remember only the very surface appearance of things. You know, we get a quick, quick hit of recognition. We distinguish, we distinguish it. We create a concept. But then our concept often limits or obscures or is colored by the concept that we've created. I'll just give you a couple of examples of this. The son of a friend of mine, this, this happened quite a while ago, he had a young boy who was in, I don't know, he was seven or eight years old. He was in school, and the teacher was asking him, what color is an apple? And so the, the boy raised his hand, he said, white. And the teacher said, apples aren't white. <laughs> now, apples are red, apples are green, apples are golden. There's no white apple. But the boy was very insistent. No, 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 apples are white. And the teacher was getting more upset with him. And finally, in great frustration, you know, the, the boy said, you know, when you cut open the apple, what color is it? And it was just such a striking example of how we can get so fixed in our concept, apple, red, or apple, green. And it obscures, it limits a deeper understanding of what else is going on. Another example, and <laughs> this one is so illustrative of how we live our lives. This was told to me by a yogi uh, last year or the year before. They were building a house, you know, out in the woods, and as they were building it, they saw these beautiful birds flying around, you know, seemed to be uh, liking to, to just hang around the location of the house. And then it was all finished, and they move in, and they hear this chirping in the basement, and they just got so excited, you know, that, oh, great, you know, the bird made a nest in the basement and is going to have little birdlets. <laughs> so they, every time they heard the chirp, they were, they were just really happy. You know, and then, I don't know, it was a week or two later, and uh, some repair person came and went down in the basement, and he came upstairs and he said, you know, your smoke alarm is broken. It's making this, you know, beeping sound. <laughs> and as soon as it was the smoke alarm, the broken smoke alarm, it had to be fixed immediately. When it was the bird chirping, oh, great, you know, it's so nice that they made a nest here. Nothing changed. It was the same sound. But our concepts change. And when the concepts change, the way we relate to experience changes. Perception without mindfulness really limits and conditions and colors the way we are living in the world. But when perception is in the service of mindfulness, and this is really what we're practicing here, the, recog 
the recognizing, the recognition function of perception serves to frame the experience. If it's in the service of mindfulness, we recognize it, we name it, we put a concept on it for the purpose not of limiting or conditioning, but for framing it so that we can understand the reality of it in a deeper way. It's like framing a picture in order to see it more clearly. Now, one monk spoke of rallying concepts for the higher purpose of developing wisdom, whereby concepts themselves are transcended. So we can rally this power of the mind, which is, it is a power, as we know, we mostly live in it. We rally the power of concepts for the higher purpose of developing wisdom. When we understand the use of perception in this way, in the service of mindfulness, it reveals a lot the power and the purpose of the tool of mental noting. Because this is precisely what the noting is about. It's using the perception factor, using the concept to strengthen mindfulness. When we're using the noting in this way, there's this, there's this, there's this, there's this, there's this. It strengthens the continuity of the mindfulness. Or as Ajahn Sumedho says, and I think it's very useful, the breath is like this. The sound is like this. Anger is like this. Fear is like this. It's using that recognition, oh, this is what's happening. It provides a mechanism for staying continuous in our mindfulness. Second, the tone of the note often illuminates unconscious attitudes of mind. Because when you're noting and you pay attention to the tone of the note in the mind, Often it reveals, is it impatient? Is it bored? Is it interested? Is it calm? The tone of the note is showing us that. Whereas without the note, all of those states may be there and they may go unrecognized. The noting, this use of perception, the rallying of concepts in the service of wisdom, in the service of mindfulness, is also a very effective feedback for us. Are we really being mindful or not in a continuous and sustained way? Are we practicing to make the mindfulness seamless in the day? So it's as if the whole day becomes a sitting. Or is it kind of on again, off again, And I'm not suggesting that even when we use the noting that our minds will never get distracted. But it really has to do with the intention. Is our intention to keep it as continuous as possible? The noting is a feedback for us. 
Now it's very important not to confuse this use of perception with grimness. Noting does not mean grimness, and you certainly don't have to be grim (laughs) as you use this tool. It can be done with the grace and simplicity and lightness and ease of a Tai Chi master, or a Japanese tea ceremony, where we just settle back into the bare knowing, understanding that we can use the factor of perception to strengthen mindfulness, so very lightly, oh, this, 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 this. There's one last function of the noting I want to mention, this use of perception, because it strengthens our experience of freedom right now, rather than postponing it and thinking freedom is off in the future someplace. Noting can help cut through our identification with experience, both when the hindrances are present, but also when our practice has gotten very refined. So it's not only for use, you know, just when we're struggling with hindrances, when things, when the mind has gotten very, very refined, it's possible to become identified with that. And so just a very simple note dropped into that can break or cut through that identification. I want to read to you, this is a wonderful uh, account from the Thai forest master, Ajahn Mahabua who is still alive, and he's reputed to be an arhant. Of course, I don't know how one knows, but he's, he's one of the very great beings. Uh, and he's describing really a moment of illumination in his own practice. So he says, once when I went to this Wat to practice, the problem of unawareness or ignorance had me bedeviled for quite some time. This is interesting now. He's dealing with the problem of unawareness, of ignorance. At that stage, the mind was so radiant that I came to marvel at its radiance. Everything of every sort which could make me marvel seemed to have gathered there in the mind, to the point where I began to marvel at myself. Why is it that my mind is so marvelous? (laughs) Looking at the body, I couldn't see it at all. It was all space, empty. The mind was radiant in full force. But luckily, as soon as I began to marvel at myself, to the point of exclaiming deludedly in the heart, without being conscious of it, why has my mind come so far? At that moment, a statement of Dhamma spontaneously arose. This too I hadn't anticipated. It suddenly appeared as if someone were speaking in the heart, although there was no one there. It simply appeared as a statement. If there is a point or a center of the knower anywhere, this is an agent of birth. That's what it said. 
So even in that great radiance of mind, the body has disappeared, it's all empty space, the mind is luminous. Even in that quality, that very refined quality of mind, if there's any identification, if there's any reference point of being the knower, that's delusion, that's ignorance, that's the agent of birth. So even in states like that, just the simple note of knowing, 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 cutting through identification, even with the knowing, So there's no reference point, there's no center. The center drops out. It's also helpful to recognize the limitations of noting as a tool. It's not an intellectual reflection. But the note, if it's used, should be kept to a bare minimum. Just a single word. Because taking concepts too far solidifies our sense or our view of reality. And we get boxed in by the concepts we create. came across a poem by Pablo Neruda, who, as you know, is a totally wonderful poet. I did take some liberties to edit, so I won't be reading the whole poem. But it has to do with the limitation of concepts. And the name of the poem is Too Too Many Names. Mondays are meshed with Tuesdays, and the week with the whole year. Time cannot be cut with your exhausted scissors, and all the names of the day are washed out by the waters of night. No one can claim the name of Pedro. Nobody is Rosa or Maria. All of us are dust or sand. All of us are rain under rain. They have spoken to me of Venezuelas, of Chiles, of Paraguays. I have no idea what they are saying. I know only the skin of the earth, and I know it has no name. When I sleep every night, what am I called or not called? And when I wake, who am I if I was not I while I slept? Let us not fill our mouths with so many faltering names, with so many sad formalities, with so many pompous letters, with so much of yours and mine, with so much signing of papers. I have a mind to confuse things, unite them, make them newborn, mix them up, undress them, until all light in the world has the oneness of the ocean, a generous, vast wholeness, a crackling, living fragrance. So that's the other side. We need, even as we might use concepts in the service of wisdom, we need to see the limitation of concepts need to see that the noting is not an end in itself. It's not the essence of the practice.
as mindfulness gets stronger, we may become aware of too many things to note. Or things are happening so quickly, we can note them. The noting is much too slow. When mindfulness is well established, through these two means, through mindfulness itself and the building of the momentum, through the skillful use of perception in the service of mindfulness, so we don't get lost in the concepts. When mindfulness is well established, it runs, it goes on all by itself. And at that time it really could be called effortless effort. There's no one doing anything. We simply are resting in this continuity of bare knowing. I'd just like to close with one little writing of the Native American writer Louise Erdrich, who captured, I think, the essence of our whole practice. She said, those powerful moments of true knowledge which we paper over with daily life. But every, every so often something shatters like ice and we fall into the river of our own existence. We are aware. Really, this is what we're doing. We're falling into the river of our own existence. Mindfulness is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge, for bare knowing, and continuous mindfulness. This is what we practice. So let's sit for a few minutes in the river of our existence. And see, even in these few moments, and then carrying it afterwards, just keying in to that insight that what's happening is very simply the arising of knowing an object, knowing an object, moment after moment, happening spontaneously, happening simultaneously, Breathing in, there's the knowing of it. Breathing out, there's the knowing of it. Sitting without wanting, without struggle.
This talk was given by Joseph Goldstein at M's 3MT on October 20, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.